You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me, and we get into the journey of their lives. Not just the most recent bright and shiny moment, but we talk about that too. The reason I hold conversations this way is with the hopes that you can see that most people don't have a straight upward line in their life or they know exactly what they're going to do their whole time. Everyone's got struggles and twists and turns. Today's guest is Allison Raskin. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's a co-host of the popular podcast, Just Between Us. This lady has done a a lot in her already young life, and her newest book came out recently called Overthinking About You. I loved talking to her so much. Um, I love following her on social media. She's a big mental health advocate. She's got her own account, Allison Raskin, as well as Emotional Support Lady. Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. Make sure if you haven't already to hit the follow button. I no longer use the subscribe term, it seems, in podcast world. Follow button and leave a review if you haven't yet. And then send it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com. And I'll send you a little gift from my product line. All right, let's send me, I meant to say, send me a screenshot. So you post your review. And even before you hit submit, you can screenshot it and send it to me. And I'll send you a gift as a thank you because ratings, reviews really actually help podcasts become discovered by more people. It helps that little algorithm. And also so do reviews on books. So make sure to go rate my book, F the Shoulds Do the Once. And if you get Allison's book or books, go leave a review there too. All right, now let's get to the episode. Okay, so I love starting with getting into people's high school years. You can go earlier than that. Yeah, yeah, everybody's like, whoa, what? (laughs) (laughs) But um, I feel like, you know, so often it's like, high school years are so interesting. And like at that time, it can be the start of this focus on like, what are you going to be and do with your life? And um, wondering like, yeah, did you have any dreams of what you thought you would be or getting any sort of like nudges from parents or teachers or anything? Or like, yeah, did you have plans for yourself? You know, I think that I thought for a while that I like had to be a lawyer. Like my dad was a lawyer and I was like, oh, yeah, that's the real job. But I always loved writing. And the summer, I believe either the summer when I was 15, so whatever summer that is. I I did this program at Williams College and I took a writing class there. And my teacher at some point, I don't remember her name. I don't remember what she looked like, but this woman changed my life because at some point she said to me, you know, you can just be a writer for a living. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then honestly, from that moment forward, I was like, I want to be a writer. And so I've actually kind of known what I've wanted to do since a really young age, which has been really lovely for me. Wow. And so once you like got that feeling, were was your family supportive? Yes, I have a very supportive family. I will also say there was something that sucked about knowing what I wanted to do because it meant that like 
I, I wasn't in control of it. You know, like if I wanted to be a lawyer, I could just become a lawyer. But like being a writer is so much more luck and like and ups and downs and all of those things. Like I wish I wanted to be something else, but alas, I want to write. Um, <laughs> but I, I had a very supportive family. You know, I really struggled with my mental health when I was younger. And I think that there was a, a period of time where my family or my parents didn't necessarily know what my life would look like and if I would have, um, you know, a quote unquote normal or stable life. And so I think for them, it was sort of like, oh, you want to be a writer and you're not going to hurt yourself? Great. <laughs> like they were just sort of happy for me to have found something that I liked. And they, and they're, you know, they love the arts. My mom's a photographer. My, both my parents love TV and movies. And so they've always been, you know, they, they like invest in, in, uh, Broadway musicals, like they're people who like see the value in the arts. And I think that that helped a lot too. Got it. Do you mind talking about mental health, your mental health struggle when you were younger and like what that looked like? Cause yeah, for, for your parents to be the sort of like, oh, okay, we're just glad, you know, like that they noticed it was something not just like teenage angst, but. Yeah. So I actually got diagnosed with OCD when I was four years old. So I've um, been, you know, struggling with to various degrees with my mental health pretty much my whole life. And I think, you know, I, I went through various levels of, of stability and, um, you know, I have a terrible memory, which is hilarious because I wrote a memoir, but <laughs> a lot of <laughs> a lot of my, you know, younger years, I don't really have firm memories of. And it's a lot more of just uh, my parents telling me what it was like. And, you know, I know in high school, I really, you know, struggled to have friends. And I was often rather depressed and not happy. And, you know, I'd say that like my, my real life in terms of like, actively liking my life started more, you know, there were phases of liking it. But really coming into my own really took an, until my 20s um, and feeling more learning to like myself probably took until my late 20s. Well, I think there's still people out there much later struggling with that, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, do you know, I'm guessing your parents told you like what led to them even taking you to get a, di a diagnosis at that young? Like were there things that they were seeing like, oh, what's going on here? Definitely. I, I had something called pandas, which basically means that um, I had strep throat and the strep throat activated um, the OCD in my brain. So my behavior changed pretty rapidly, pretty quickly and, and kind of so severely my parents thought that it might even be a brain tumor. So I went from being, you know, a really happy, go lucky, carefree kid and then suddenly, you know, consumed with worry, consumed with compulsions. Wow. Not myself. So like I you had said, strep throat, you were sick. And then after you got better, they just like noticed you were constantly worried about everything and like living in fear. Yeah. I think a couple weeks later, my behavior just like really changed overnight. Um, and I said to my dad, I, I think I need to see a doctor. Something inside of me is making me sad, Aww. which is like so heartbreaking for my poor father to hear. Now it's like, oh, what a what a succinct story. But at the time, I think it was, you know, so traumatizing for him to probably hear that. But I was very lucky in that my family was so proactive about my mental health and immediately had me seeing psychologists. I, I went down, I grew up in New York and we went down to 
St. John's in, in Baltimore to see a specialist psychiatrist um, who got me on medication. And, you know, from the get-go, they treated it the way I think a lot of parents would treat a physical illness. They were so proactive about it and they took it really seriously, which I'm eternally grateful for. Yeah, that's great. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old right now. So I'm just like imagining like, yeah, my daughter, and that'd be like heartbreaking. But yeah, I'd want to do everything I could to support her. So as you got older and then like back, like in those high school years too, like how did that present? Was it manageable or, you know, like was the OCD keeping you and, and other mental health keeping you from like feeling like you fit in or even like paying attention to class and stuff like that? Or like how did that, was it, you know, because I think for all teenagers, well, maybe not all, but I make up for most teachers there is, it's like can be such a challenging time and like not want, yeah, like wanting to stand out and fit in or like, what should I be doing? Liking this, that, like, there's just so much pressure during those ages, I feel. Oh, I would, you would have to pay me millions of dollars to be a teenager again. (laughs) It is such a, it's such a hard time. I mean, your brain isn't fully formed. There's so much social pressure. You're trying to figure out who you are while everyone else is telling you who to be and it. And it's really tough. And you know, I, I always did really well academically. You know, I, I was always um, excelled in school, partially because I was so hard on myself and, and so very worried about not getting straight A's to a level that was to my detriment. You know, if I have children and they're worried about school, I'll most likely be like, this doesn't matter. It's fine. Um, you know? That's pretty much how I am already. I mean, I live yeah. in kindergarten. <laughs> Like, it's like, you'll be okay if you don't get an A in kindergarten. Um, and, uh, but I, I struggled socially. I struggled with friendships. Um, I struggled, uh, as, and, you know, especially with, with romantic relationships, which is really why I, I ended up writing this book, because that was just this one area of my life where my, my worst self continuously came out and where I felt like I had the least control over myself and my actions. Was that meaning like, did you have interest or just more even like in the like wanting to have a partner or you would find yourself like in the start of a relationship and like losing uh, emotional like stability or? You know, I didn't date too much in high school. It was a lot of me pining for people and, and things and, and I'm like feeling same. like I wasn't good <laughs> enough and, yeah, and, and, and being rejected, you know, quite often. Um, but once I hit college, I I really jumped from guy to guy to guy to guy just in this effort to try to lock somebody down. I was so desperate for somebody to commit to me. And um, I wasn't being true to myself in that process. And I was putting myself in a lot of, of bad situations. And I was also just, you know, I went through a breakup my sophomore year of, of college that like, basically sent me into a two year depression. Like I just was having big reactions to these things. And I, I was unable to you know, emotionally regulate. I, that breakup caused me, you know, to self-harm. Like it was really like my emotional stability could get very rocked by, by these people who, who were not worth that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't have that, but I, even from high school ages, like, and yeah, like I was definitely like the one pining or like, I was like always the guy's best friend. Like, oh, great. Like you're interested in my friend and you really like hanging out with me, but nobody felt like it was like romantically interested in me. Mm-hmm. And I just remember feeling like not now looking back, it's like if only I had a guy or had a boyfriend, then people would see that I was like enough. 
or like then I was worthy. Like it, like a lot of my worth, I felt like in having that. But a lot of times I would like get a guy interested in me. Like finally somebody's interested, but I didn't like them at all. So then I'd be like, oh, never mind. Like it was like such this like weirdness of like, please like me, like me, like me. But then I'm like, but I don't actually like you. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I, you know, when I wrote the book, I, I kind of had to like sit down and be like, why have I always been so obsessed with having a life partner? Like, why has that always been like my desire above everything else? And I ultimately came, you know, maybe this is right or wrong, but I think there's some truth to it in that I had always felt broken and I had always felt like something was wrong with me. And I thought that if I could have a partner, then then I would be whole or then I would finally be like doing life correctly. That made mm. sense. Yeah, interesting. Uh, okay, so when did you end up going to college for writing, I guess? I actually did. I, I went um, to USC for screenwriting. And oh, wow. It was a, a really small, really targeted program. That was that was wonderful. And what made you go into screenwriting specifically? <laughs> um, I had no intention of, of going into screenwriting, but then we were visiting USC and we were looking at we were about we were on the tour and we were about to go visit the creative writing department. And then my mom said, well, why don't we check out the film school? And that moment changed my life. Like during that tour, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do, because I had always loved dialogue. Um, and that was always my greatest strength in writing. And I love TV and movies. And so that was like a day of like where I could point to. And then my my goal shifted. Um, and I Nobody thought I would get in. It's a very small program. It was the only film school I applied to. It was the only school on the West Coast I applied to. Um, and then the moment I got in, my parents were like, oh, no, she's never coming back. <laughs> That's funny. So, OK, so you go then. Did you end up staying there and like graduating for, with Yeah, I've been in Los Angeles uh, since I was 18 and I'm 32 now. And, and like during that program for screenwriting, uh, like, yeah, were you very much like, OK, this is what I want to do. I want to like write or like what came up during that time, too? I I definitely was in the right major. I, I loved it. I, um, you know, I I'm a sc I'm screenwriting is probably my first love. I, I've in the last few years, I've written more um, uh, prose and obviously I have this book. And then I, I also have a, a sub stack where I'm, I'm writing weekly blogs and advice columns and I'm writing more, you know, traditionally, but my first love really is, is scripted and, and, um, and TV. And, uh, I've, I've developed multiple shows and all that stuff. And that, that's really where I, my, my first love is, but, um, got it. So you did end up like getting out of college of screen injury and then working in that industry. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So then how did the yeah, like, because how did the young adult novels come about? So I started a YouTube channel with my comedy partner in 2014. And we were lucky enough to, to work at BuzzFeed for a bit of time. And that really helped us gather an audience um, onto our channel. And we it kind of just built up this brand. And so we were able to, you know, pitch this YA novel to a couple different publishers. And I think I think a mix of it being a good idea and then also just a mix that we had this audience. And so it's a lot easier to sell things when you already have an audience. Um, and we had originally thought that our first book was going to have to be like more of a classic YouTuber book, like more of like a, 
how to be best friends or something that wasn't uh, a novel. I was like, but, what's a classic YouTube book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, something something nonfiction, uh, more just like about you and your life or whatever. Um, Got it. And then uh, we were, our agent at the time was like, no, we like this novel idea. Just pitch this novel idea. And and we did and we sold it and then we got to write a sequel and it was a, it was a really wonderful experience. And so what were you doing working at BuzzFeed? Were you a writer there or how did that end up happening? Uh, we, I was in the scripted department during the time when they had that, but I was basically oh, just writing a bunch it. of videos and appearing in a bunch of videos too. So got it. So you were like writing scripts. That's like, yeah. So it was still in the same, like I'm a screenwriter, a script writer and that. And then it sort of, yeah, you started then appearing in the videos, I guess, and then getting your own following for being you. Yeah. <laughs> Trisha here, bringing you a brief interruption. Do it right now. Go sign up for Blissoma's newsletter. Why? Because they are about to have a once a year sale where you get 30% off all their products. It's from June 17th through June 19th, and you only get access if you are an email or text subscriber. You can go to blissoma.com backslash summer dash subscriber dash sale. Links will be in the show notes. Now, why do you want to buy their products? Their skincare products are game changing. They're based on whole herb extracts, unrefined oils, and fresh juices. The products are rich with antioxidants, bioavailable vitamins, essential fatty acids, and complex phytonutrients that are usually missing in refined commercial skincare products. They're also free of all of that stuff that you want them to be free of, including fragrances that can really affect your skin. Okay, now what does that actually mean? They are a legit skincare company that cares about what they are doing and cares about your skin. When I use their products, I can see and feel an immediate difference, not like after a week of using it, immediately after using it. You want to go try their products. And whether you're listening to this before or after the sale, you can go and order a sample set. So you can choose four products that you want to try. And they even have an offer right now that you can check out to get that sample set for free. That link will also be in the show notes. It's blissoma.com backslash skincare dash sample dash set dash offer. A lot of people are paying a lot of attention to what they put in their bodies, the food and drinks. But what about what you put in your skin or on your skin? Go check out Blissoma. Okay, and so then what led you to writing this new book that's coming out, which is much different, I'm guessing, than your than your young adult fiction book? It is and it isn't. You know, mental health is a big part of, of those novels as well. Oh, um, cool. And so I I basically, you know, since starting the YouTube channel and since coming up on the internet, I've I've always been sharing things about my life and about my struggles with both dating and with my mental health. And I realized um, a few years ago that I had seen this shift in myself that I was able to sort of date in a healthier way. 
And I thought, oh, this is a really interesting journey that feels like it could be helpful for other people. Um, and so that's how I came up with the the idea for Overthinking About You, which basically examines the intersection between dating, romantic relationships, and mental health. And the original conceit of the book was actually much more of a memoir, but I realized that sharing my story wasn't enough. I wanted to blow it out. And so I interviewed a bunch of experts, mental health professionals, dating coaches, couples. And the end result is a blend of memoir and self-help. And and the goal is to sort of like provide a roadmap for people who have anxiety, OCD, and depression to sort of be able to date in a healthier way and also, you know, navigate this this part of their life that is probably been a struggle um, because it was definitely a struggle for me. Yeah, I think that's probably going to be such a helpful book for so many people and like such a unique thing to write and share about that is like so needed, but you wouldn't necessarily like think about it because it's such a concern, like dating, finding your person or whatever, like it can be like such a big thing. And there's constant questions, even if you're just going about your own business, then like, oh, you go to a party. Oh, you're dating somebody, your family, this, like that, that it's like even something that if you feel like, oh, I'm good, then it's like probably coming at you constantly and then be like, wait, am I, wait, am I good? Why are people asking about me being single? Like these things that can then, we think we are good <laughs> and then question it. What was like, do you remember what, like when you said you noticed that you felt like you were dating differently or feeling different now on that journey and like, oh, this is interesting. Like what were those things that had happened before that and that you were noticing the shift in? Yeah. So um when I started dating my my most recent ex, my ex fiance, um, I was able to handle the uncertainty of of what was happening better. Like I was able to go at a slower pace and sort of feel like I'm excited about this person, but also if this doesn't work out, I won't be devastated. Like I will be okay. I had just like more sense of of trust in myself and being able to handle it, whatever ended up happening. Uh, I also didn't, I wasn't making like the harmful assumptions that I, that I used to make about things, you know, like we ended up having to sometimes see his ex-girlfriend and in, in the past that would have been a really tough thing for me to deal with. And I would have really assumed that he would rather be with her and that, that I would have felt a lot of jealousy and insecurity. And, uh, and instead I was able to say, I'm going to trust that he's choosing to be with me. Um, and so really just having a better relationship with myself and seeing more value in myself made it so that this other person's approval of me still mattered, but not, not to the same extent. And I was able to just better care for myself and not ruminate in the same way on stuff and just sort of um, be more present in, in the moment. And I just had a healthier approach to all of it. And so um, that really sparked the idea for the book. And did you feel, yeah, because I feel like so much relates to like our own self-worth, which it is, I feel like a daily like struggle. <laughs> For 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 anybody, it's like I have always felt like I have a solid sense of it, but at the same time, it's like no, like every day, sometimes every moment of the day, it's like whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, uh, are you worried too much about what other people think about you, or like what do you think about you? Like I feel like we're just so externally motivated with on like just wired that way. Like, so do you feel it was you know even just maturity and also gaining more of your own like confidence in yourself 
Or like, yeah, were there things like practices that you had done that supported you? Or, or was it just, like I said, more just maturity and then looking back and like, how can I give these tools that I gained maybe with age and trial to people that have not gotten there yet? It was a mix of things. I mean, I think definitely age helps just because when you have had more life experience, you're able to have a different perspective, right? Because when you go to your first heartbreak, you're, it's easy to think that it's the end of the world because you don't have any proof that it's not. So when you've been through more stuff, it's easier to see, oh, okay, this is a bad time, but eventually there will be a good time again. Then there's the element of like your brain developing, you know, like your brain's not fully developed until you're 25 or 26. So it is harder for you to regulate your emotions. It's sort of harder for you to do some of these healthier things. I also went back on medication um, and that helped quiet a lot of the noise in my head and allowed me to start to really apply what I'd been learning in therapy, but hadn't quite been able to execute. And then I'd say another really tangible thing that I did was I stopped talking about myself negatively out loud. Like I'm, I stopped making as many self-deprecating jokes. And, and when I would think horrible things about myself, I would start to sort of put up a stop sign and say, stop it. <laughs> Um, it didn't mean that I immediately launched into so positive self-talk. I wasn't like staring in a mirror at myself going, you're beautiful, you're loved. Because at that point, I wasn't going to believe that. It, the first step was really was really banishing the negative self-talk. And first, the first step of that was out loud. And then the second step was internally. Yeah, I love that. And like, but versus like the awareness of even like, did you have a moment like, I don't like how I'm talking to myself or this is not good because, you know, like so many people don't even realize how they are being self-deprecating or, you know, like that's what too, like I told you, my book is coming out next week and it's called F the shoulds do the once. And it's about I actually quit using the word should over a decade ago. And because of that, I didn't realize how often I used it and it made me so present to what I was thinking and feeling and why. And so many of these things that like, I now see that most people, they don't even realize that they said something terrible, like that, you know, like, and I self-deprecating, I used to be self-deprecating too. And like, I'm so funny and like easy going and like, you know, like, and then you start to realize like, no. And even when you hear other people talk about themselves like that, it's like, it's not, that's not funny. That doesn't actually feel like, you know, like when you're around people that are making those sort of comments, it doesn't feel good for the listener. For the friend, you know, it's like you think you're being funny talking about yourself and it doesn't feel good, but they aren't aware. So, yeah, do you remember even a time of like, why am I being such an asshole to myself? Or like, what, you know, like I need to get better at, I need to like put up, okay, stop, or like, you, you know, create these things, or I have this rule now, I'm not allowed to talk to my, about myself negatively. I don't remember the exact moment, but I know that it, it all started to happen following that breakup in 2017 when I went back on meds when I started working with my psychiatrist. Um, and I think a lot of shift happened for me then. But it is hard and, and you need to be self-compassionate about the fact that you think that way in the first place. We're told that we're not good enough in society. We're told that we should constantly be striving to be better that we should compare ourselves to other people, that if we don't look a certain way, then we are not of value. And so it's not that like you just were born and became a negative, self-critical person. You were shaped that way. And so having the compassion to say, I understand why I am this way, but I also don't want to continue to be this way, I think is really powerful. So you don't need to judge yourself for being that way in the first place because it makes perfect sense given the way we're brought up. Same. Yeah, I love and how you said that was so great. And yeah, 
I'm constantly saying that. It's like we so often are like piling these shitty feelings on top of shitty feelings. Like, oh, I'm so terrible. I just judge myself. I'm not blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, I'm feeling bad about that stuff. Or, oh, no, I judge. Like, it's, I think we're like wired a certain way that, yeah, we judge people or we jump into comparison. But then you can like be like, oh, (laughs) what did I just think? Like, I don't want to, you know, like, oh, okay, that's not great. And like question the thought and process it. But then we'd be like, I'm such a terrible person. I'm being judged like this. And then we're not actually (laughs) like, doing anything that's positive to heal ourselves and move forward. So I'm the same that it's like such self-compassion is so big and like realizing it's not your fault that you like had the fear, the doubt, the shame, the guilt, whatever the thing is. But like, oh, that's really what I just thought or really like I feel I'm not enough because of this and being able to question our thoughts. Yay. I'm so excited. And so, yeah, like what is uh, what is the name of the book again? I love it so much. And it just slipped my mind. Uh, <laughs> overthinking about you. Overthinking Navigating about you. romantic relationships that you have anxiety, OCD, and or depression. And is this for, yeah, like, so when it says anxiety, OCD, depression, it's not as if, oh, you, if you only can read this book, if you've been diagnosed with those things. Like, I'm guessing the support, it's supportive for people, basically anybody who would be dating <laughs> because it causes anxiety <laughs> depression of like nobody loves me or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I included those three specific disorders because that's what I've dealt with personally, but I I've ha- heard a lot of feedback that it's really helpful even if even if that's not something that you've ever been diagnosed with or even if it's not something you deal with. Um it's really just a roadmap for for healthier relationships. Um and also uh, to speak to the fact that so many people don't have access to a diagnosis because they don't have access to mental health help. They don't have access to therapy or psychiatrists. And so um, it's definitely not something where you need to have been professionally diagnosed for this book to help you. I think I think there's something in it, hopefully for everybody. Um, But I also, you know, to work towards not stigmatizing, you know, claiming ownership that I do have these three disorders and that that's okay. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Was there anything because you said you ended up talking to lots of like researchers and dating coaches and such like what were your favorite or like eye-opening things that you learned from these other people that you were talking to and writing the book you know a lot of it reinforced what I had been suspecting which was really nice like I think if I had gone in and they told me things and I was like whoa really then I would have been like maybe I shouldn't be writing this book um (laughs) but I think you know one of my favorite uh takeaways is the idea that um Shiva Rajahi, a marriage and family therapist, said, which is that she looks for good enough relationships. And I think that that is such a liberating goal. Um, We put so much pressure on ourselves to find the perfect relationship, to find our soulmate, to find the one. And she sort of just like breaks down all of those as, as harmful myths. And instead, what you're really looking for is a relationship that is good enough, that that meets the needs that you have. And that can be totally different than the needs that your friends or that people on TV have. And so really getting in touch with what it is that you value and making sure that's met. But then the other stuff that isn't a necessity, being more flexible around those things. Yeah, I love that. And that made me think too, is there information in the book too about people then like being in a relationship that they perhaps thought was good enough and then like changing their mind and like you know like exiting relationships as well there's yeah there's a whole chapter on breakups um there's a chapter on identifying if you're in an unhealthy relationship um 
I actually, while I was writing the book, my my fiance uh, walked out on me with like no explanation. And so Sorry, I'm I like, really- I feel for you and also like I'm laughing because it's like, how perfect. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I, had to- <laughs> I was like, but I'm writing this book and you're in it. Um, <laughs> and so I really, you know, I kind of like became the, the guinea pig of, of the lessons of the book and and like you know, I had the rug ripped out from under me, but I was able to to find my footing again because I had sort of done this work previously to take care of myself so that when he did leave in a really, you know, horrible, I think disrespectful way, I was able to to care for myself and to not fall apart mentally in the way I would have in the past. Yeah. Wow. I can't imagine um, writing this book. And well, just that happening, period, sucks. And then while you're writing that book and then, but uh, you know, at least there is some sort of maybe gift in there that like you got to really test what you were putting in. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this certain book works. Uh, it worked for me and I hope it will work for you as well. <laughs> <laughs> that something like really heart wrenching happened to me while I was writing my book, too. And it was like interesting. So like I was like going through like this certain thing and ended up being like, devastated by what was happening and then like writing like man I thought this was the tool I was going to give to help people like in when they're in this situation where like they can't control and then be like that doesn't work right now like so it's like like things got developed for me that also that I put in the book during a time that I was going through that was terrible while I happened to be writing the book that wasn't as on point as your situation but I was like wow well those guys that perfect timing that I was able to write that chapter that week It helps to process things too when we write when we write through it all. So um, it was it was an interesting journey, definitely <laughs> from beginning to end. Okay, I'm just going to ask you a couple questions. I ask everybody. The first one is, what is a go to to up your joy levels when you may be feeling a little bit off and you're like, hey, what can I do to boost my mood? I don't know if this will apply to everybody, but for me, it's it's playing with my dogs. I love animals. I love interacting with animals. And, and that is always a serotonin boost for me, um, just to take some time to, to pet and play around. <laughs> yeah, love that. And I've definitely heard that one before. <laughs> uh, the next thing is I ask people to apply this phrase to their life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So like a way you're naturally inclined to do things where you're like, no, 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 that's actually not the best for me. So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. Oh, I guess what is easiest for me is to give in to all of my OCD compulsions. And what is best for me is to fight my OCD on the days when I have the strength and willingness to do so. Do you mind talking about like what some of the OCD compulsions are? Because I think OCD can get thrown around by so much like people just use it flippantly who don't have a diagnosis of like, I'm so concerned about things going in their place. I'm OCD. And is that a reality? Like, I'm guessing it's different for different people. Yeah, it manifests so differently. And it's also a spectrum, you know, like I, um, I would qualify my OCD as it is now as as like mild to moderate, like it's nowhere near what a lot of people suffer with when they have it more severely. I think when I was younger, it was pretty severe, but now I'm in a, in a much better place. Um, but I, I, I actually end up having the, the kind that is often made fun of on sitcoms where I have contamination, contamination OCD. So it is a lot of cleanliness-based compulsions and cleaning things and not touching things and wiping stuff down. And let's just say that I was ready for the pandemic. I had the skill sets <laughs> necessary to, you know, 
deal with COVID. <laughs> Got it. So when you're saying to not give in to it's like, oh, you might want to be like, oh, I can't do anything until that's something like, no, okay, I can get back to that. Like that sort of like refocusing when you catch yourself needing to. Right. Or like I, you know, my boyfriend recently touched his sweatpants, touched a suitcase while he was getting a suitcase out of the shed. And I wanted to wash his sweatpants. And he was like, no. And I had to be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It. I feel because so often we're putting like, we will feel successful when we do this. We will feel enough once we have this. You know, like we're always putting these things that we're seeking outside of ourselves. Uh, but really, you could actually, if you focus on what would that feel like? What does success even feel like? What does it feel like to be enough? What does it feel like to be fulfilled? That when you put your focus on feeling something, you can actually claim that feeling for yourself. And maybe not as easy, but like that we can claim this thing that we are searching that is not at the end of the rainbow row that we'll probably still search for once we get there. <laughs> so what are you claiming for yourself today? <sighs> I think I, I want to claim that I'm safe, that I, you know, that despite all of the turbulence of my career and my relationship, that I, I remain safe. Um, that feels like a, a real goal for me. Awesome. I love that. Felt really nice to hear you say that. And I'm sure people listening <laughs> will be like, oh, yeah. Okay. Love, 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 Allison. She's one of my like favorite new people to follow on social media. You can find her at Allison Raskin and at Emotional Support Lady. Go get her book, Overthinking About You. Overthinking. Overthinking. <laughs> I felt like I was saying overthinking about you. I guess that's not really much different. And um, for all things me, you can go to yourdualgist.com. Of course, please go check out my book too if you have not yet. F the shoulds, do the once. You can go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com to find links to all the places to get it as well as you can still claim some bonuses there once you order the book and submit your details. I love to hear from you. Again, please leave a review, screenshot it, and send it to podcast at yourdualogist.com. I love knowing that you listen. Please share the podcast, tag me. And for the final thought of the day, of the day, <laughs> I don't know what time of day you're listening to this. For the final thought of the podcast is what are you claiming? for yourself this summer. What are you claiming for yourself this summer? It might be a word like freedom, fun. It might be an attitude. What are you claiming for yourself? 